If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you were to ask most people how sure they are about things these past few years, most would respond with doubt over things that they, they seem to be certain about just a few years ago. The health that they took for granted, they now have doubts. The paycheck coming in, they now have doubts. The connection with others, they now have doubts for many reasons. The faith they once had, they are not so sure of anymore. They have doubts. The truth is, while it is good to be aware of what's going on and being discerning, we should understand that doubt is the natural human response to the constant changes of life. For many disciples of Christ, doubt is where they live, though they claim to live by faith. They tell themselves and others they know what God's Word says, but practically they live in doubt every day that passes. We're going to be looking at three things when it comes to doubt today, as we did last week with fear. Number one, defining doubt. Number two, illustrating doubt. And number three, overcoming doubt. Number one, defining doubt. If you were to look in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, doubt is defined as the following. A lack of confidence, distrust. He has doubts about his abilities. Also an inclination not to believe or accept. A claim met with doubt. Uncertainty of belief or opinion that often interferes with decision-making. A deliberate suspension of judgment. Here's another one. A state of affairs giving rise to uncertainty, hesitation, or suspense. And these are synonyms for that word. Distrust. Distrustfulness. Incertitude. Misgiving, mistrust, mistrustfulness, query, reservation, skepticism, suspicion, and uncertainty. You see, if you're looking in a Bible dictionary, Strong's defines this word the following way. Distazzo, I waver. Doubt, hesitate. If you looked in the HELPS word studies, here's what it says. Dis, which is two or double. And stasis, or stance, or standing. Double standing. Properly going two ways. Shifting between positions. Choosing a double stance. And hence, vacillate or waver. Uncertain at a crossroad. 
because refusing to choose one way over the other. Wanting, if you will, to have our cake and eat it too. To halt between two opinions, views, or beliefs. Now, one of the most helpful definitions of doubt I found is in Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Here's what it says. It is possible to have questions or doubts about persons, propositions, or objects. Philosophically and epistemologically, doubt has been deemed a valuable element in honest, rational inquiry. It prevents us from reaching hasty conclusions or making commitments to unreliable and untrustworthy sources. A suspension of judgment until sufficient inquiry is made. And adequate evidence is presented is judged to be admirable. In this light, doubt is not an enemy of faith. In fact, this seems to be the attitude of the Bereans in Acts 17 verse 11. Questioning or doubting motivates us to search further and deeper in an understanding of faith. With only rare exceptions, however, doubt in Scripture is seen as a negative attitude or action because it is directed toward God by man or evil spiritual agents. The word connotes the idea of weakness in faith or unbelief. Essentially, doubt towards anything or anyone outside the Word of God or God's revelation to us is to be expected as they are not a source of absolute truth. So we know how this word is used. Let's actually illustrate it by looking at some of the texts of Scripture. Number two, illustrating doubt. In fact, the very first expression of doubt is found before sin has been committed in the Garden of Eden. God creates man, Adam, on the sixth day and gives him a garden to tend to with only one restriction. Not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he can freely eat of every other tree in the garden. Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, here's what we read. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now God giving Adam this responsibility, He doesn't leave him alone. He gives him a helper. In Eve. Genesis 2, verses 21-22. through 22, Here's what it says. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, He made into a woman. And He brought her to the man. Man was created in perfect bliss. 
perfect happiness, a satisfaction that none of us have ever enjoyed. Without any flaws, perfection. Everything is wonderful in the Garden of Eden until Eve is tempted by the serpent. We'll be looking at the particulars of this text. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. You see, this text gives us insight that there's a serpent that is more cunning than all the other creatures, which most of us in Christianity hold to that serpent being Satan or the devil himself. Now, how do we come to this conclusion? How do we come to the conclusion that this text, when dealing with the serpent, is really referring to Satan? Well, if we turn to the last book in the Bible, in Revelation 12, Revelation, not, no, no S there, Revelation 12, verse 9, it describes Satan's expulsion from heaven. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So church, when we make statements from the Word of God, we need to be able to qualify them from the Word of God. Because I've actually read commentators on Genesis who flat out deny that it's Satan. And if you just used your Bible and studied where that word comes up in the New Testament, you'll see a direct connection right in the last book that we have in the New Testament, where John unveils all these things. The serpent, or Satan, cast doubt on what God really said. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, I really like the way the NLT puts it here. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Like, did God really say that? 
You see, Satan starts by confusing Eve. By adding even more than what the standard was originally. In fact, God himself said that you could eat of any tree but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's amazing that Satan himself starts with the ultra-legalistic position, if you will. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree? Here's where we're attacked today. Did God really say that you should have to give back to Him? Did He really say that you have to give everything that you have back to Him? Trick question. Yes and no. Did God really say that you are a saint? You're not living like one. Did God really say He would never leave you nor forsake you? You seem to be on your own right now. These doubts come by a direct attack on the very Word of God. Which is why when we're not familiar with it, or misunderstand the Word of God, we tend to do what Eve does here. We end up adding to the original statement. Oh, it's common. Look at what Eve says. Genesis 3, verses 2 through 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... Now, she's not saying this is her interpretation. She's saying that God said this. God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, wait a second, Eve. Did God say that? Did God say that? No, He did not. Eve was convinced that that's what God said. Because there was confusion already based on what Satan had started in tempting her with. When tempted to doubt, it doesn't take much if we're not close in proximity to the Word of God and being precise. In fact, we'll end up adding things to Scripture that were never there to begin with. In our minds, we add the phrase, nor shall you touch it. Oh, it happens all the time with alcohol. That's a common one in many churches. Drinking alcohol is a sin. No. The warnings of alcohol are there. The dangers of intoxication are there. And the sin of drunkenness is stated. But the nor shall you touch it is what's dangerous in many churches. We tend to change what we believe the Word of God says 
in our minds because we're not familiar with what it actually says. Now, in case you think I'm out in left field, I want you to hear some phrases that people think are biblical but are not, okay? It says something in the Bible that God helps those who help themselves. Blasphemy. There's no scripture that states that. Here's one I've heard in churches before. I'll sleep when I'm dead. What part of the warnings of hell have you forgotten? Or when someone else dies, heaven just gained an angel. Garbage. And this is spoken of in many churches. Like it's some biblical concept. Here's one that some of us have accidentally said. Money is the root of all evil. No. The love of money is the root of all evil. You might want to quote the verse correctly. Here's one. In fact, I heard it on the radio the other day. God won't give me more than I can handle. Without him, you can't handle it, which is why you need him. If he was not necessary, you could handle it. Now, some of you wish this was in the Bible, but it's not. Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not in the Bible. I'm sorry. It's important to keep things clean, though. Here's one that happens in many broken homes that end in divorce. God just wants me to be happy. Ultimately denying what Scripture says. Here's one that we actually borrowed from a whole another school of thought and philosophy, and we assume that it's a biblical concept, at least some do. This too shall pass. not a bad phrase, it's just not a biblical phrase. Here's one that's common in churches today. Try to explain this to your kids properly. Ask Jesus into your heart. Yeah, son, you know, you ask Jesus and he's literally here. No. I know what people mean by it, but unfortunately what they're doing is actually hurting the cause of Christ. Which is why repeating the sinner's prayer is just as bad. Peter never got up in the book of Acts and said, repeat after me. I, I am a sinner, am a sinner. None of that. He said, repent. And believe the gospel be baptized for the remission of sin. Here's a very... Very common one that is prominent in liberal churches today. We are all God's children. As soon as you buy into this garbage church, you're no longer believing the word of God. You're believing man's addition to the word of God that is not found in scripture. So in case you think Eve is the only one that adds things, we're prone to do the same thing. 
Now here are some phrases that are actually in the Bible that you may not even be aware are there. In fact, the blind leading the blind is one of those phrases. Did you know that's actually found in the Word of God? Jesus, when referring to the Pharisees' hypocrisy in Matthew 15, 14, says this, Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. It's a phrase right in the Word of God. How about this phrase? Wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus' warning of false teachers. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. How about this phrase? I know you and I have used this. By the skin of your teeth. You know where this is found? The book of Job. When Job was rejected by his friends in anguish. Job 19, verses 19 through 20. Says this, all my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. It's incredible how many phrases are actually in the Word of God that people don't even realize are in the Word of God. Here's another one. I think I remember the song, my wife mentioned it yesterday, Rise and Shine and Give God the Glory, Glory. It's actually in the Bible. Rise and Shine. Israel is called to be a light to the Gentiles. In Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people but the Lord will arise over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Pretty incredible. Here's one I've actually heard recently. The powers that be. Ever heard that phrase? The powers that be? Well, that's in the exhortation that Paul has on submission to government authorities in Romans 13, verse 1. In the King James, listen to what it says. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Straight out of the Word of God. Here's one that's used by many, not even Christians. And it's found in the Word of God directly. Give up or gave up the ghost. This is a perfect opportunity for you to share who Jesus is. Why? Because it connects to Christ's death on the cross. John 19, verse 30, in the KJV, look at what it says. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Which means that Jesus died. Here's one that we've heard. Go the extra mile. 
straight out of the Word of God. When a Roman soldier was asking a disciple to carry his things for a mile, Jesus told his disciples to do more than is expected. Matthew 5.41 says, And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Most of us complain about what we are already expected to do. Never mind doing the additional that Jesus calls us to. The extra mile, forget it. I don't even want to do what I'm supposed to. You see, these are just some of the many ways that we can see that we have an inaccurate understanding sometimes of the Word of God. We think we know the Word of God, but when we don't understand it clearly, it causes misapplication in our lives. Which is why knowing what Scripture says is absolutely the key to proper application. If you don't know exactly what Scripture states, you won't apply it properly. Because what you're going to do is you're going to try to apply what you've already twisted. In fact, when you ask a believer, what do you mean by love the sinner and hate the sin? And find that concept in Scripture for me and explain what you mean by it. Most people are going to be with their jaw dropped. It's in there somewhere. We need to know why we believe certain things, church. And we need to know precision in the Word of God. truth is, knowing what it says should always give us assurance when we have doubts in this life. If you're doubting more after reading the Word of God, then you're not understanding the Word of God for what it says. Or you're not holding to that being the standard. When you and I have doubts whether or not that Word of God actually speaks directly to us when we clearly read it, that God will never leave us or forsake us, the problem is not with the Word of God. Problems with us and our understanding of that. What we don't know for sure is when we'll begin to doubt when questioned, as happens to Eve. Notice what it says in verse 4 back in chapter 3 of Genesis. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, you won't die. In fact, it's better if you partake. Much better. God's having you miss out on something. He doesn't want you to enjoy what you can have. He's withholding better from you by not letting you eat this fruit. What God warned you about, Eve, is not true. In fact, you'll be like Him in knowing both good and evil, which is absolutely not true. In God, there is no evil. There is no sin. How 
Half-truths are what cause doubts in believers' lives. Church, the reason we doubt so much as believers is that the things that we see in the Word of God clearly revealed don't come out practically in our lives, so then we start doubting. And we're wondering why what we read in the Word of God isn't exactly happening the way we would expect in the real world. What we're realizing is, wait a second, the problem's with me, but it can't be me, so I have to blame something else or someone else. And unfortunately, many go back to blaming God. They buy into the lie that Satan has for Eve here. God's just, he doesn't want you to enjoy this, Eve. You're missing out. When we come to places in our lives where we wonder whether the sins we commit are really that offensive, we begin to doubt the clear teaching of Scripture. When we doubt whether or not the sin that we commit is really that offensive to God, we're coming against the clear teaching of Scripture. You see, doubt usually happens when we're not aligned with Scripture. And we have our own interpretation so that it fits our living. Which is one of the reasons why, if we were to compare our lives to others, we think the standard is much better with us than others. Even those of us that I would consider the legalist in the church, we tend to think our standard is the better one. And unfortunately, when we put ourselves up to being godlike in our standard, in the sense of assuming the authority that only Scripture has and God Himself has, we're only going to fail ourselves. We're only going to falter. We're only going to doubt. It's inevitable. Because you and I cannot live that precise life that we expect from others. Doubt makes you think you must be missing out, not experiencing what God may have forbidden. Genesis 3, verse 6 says this. Here's what happens with Eve. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Adam was not deceived. There are many speculations from Paradise Lost of what it is that Adam was going through that he participated with Eve. But he was not deceived. What's unfortunate is many that doubt are not just the ones that don't know better. They're the ones that should. In fact, many of us that doubt will tell everyone else to live by faith, but we ourselves are in agony and depression, doubting whether or not God cares about us. Many a man of God has looked to help others while doubting themselves. And church, one of the things that I know I've said many times, and I will keep repeating this, the only place you'll ever find solid, unwavering faith is in the Word of God. 
you and I will not find it anywhere else. And if you're putting that faith that you should have in the Word of God and Christ Himself in other people, guaranteed you will live in doubt. Which is one of the reasons why many turn away from the church entirely. Many people have faith in others, and because they have faith in others, when those people let, let them down, they quit everything. They let go of all the things they've been taught because, you know what, it's too much. Those people are not living what they're telling me they're living. Church, when we look to ourselves or others for the answers, no doubt, we will be in doubt. We will be. It's inevitable. And unfortunately, so many of us, we tell others that we believe, we have faith in God, and we live every day, practically speaking, doubting everything he says. We don't trust him with our money. We don't trust him with our relationships. We don't trust him with our future. We think we have it under better control than he does. Which is why many of the very things that we never practically live out in faith, we have doubts about. Look through your history as a believer in Jesus Christ. Those of you that have walked with God for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, maybe even more than that. The times that you've doubted, have you not seen where the cause of that doubt is or have you not been paying attention? The most common one for me is myself. The most common one for me is myself. I tend to think, well, you know what? If I just have this standard, if I just live up to this, everything will be just fine. And then when I fail that standard that I've set in my mind that many times is outside the Word of God, I tend to wonder whether or not I'm even saved to begin with. Yes, it's a serious struggle, church, that we all have. Many that have been in walking with God for many years still doubt. And let's not pretend that it's not a real thing. And let's not assume that only a baby Christian struggles with doubt. We all do. And how do we know that we all do? Our last week that we've lived. Did you wake up in the morning with real faith that God knows what he's doing every day? Or did you have a lot of skepticism, which is another synonym for doubt, when you looked at the news this last week? You see, we clearly see that doubt brought about by deception produces sin. And Eve's partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The question is not whether we will doubt, church. The question is how do we overcome doubt? Number three, overcoming doubt. And in overcoming doubt, my question to you and me is, is it all that important? Listen to those outside the Christian faith and what they have to say about doubt. This is their perspective. Here's what Buddha says about doubt in his writings. Doubt everything, 
Find your own light. That's what Buddha thought about Tao. What about Frederick Nietzsche? Doubt as sin. Here's his commentary on Christianity. Christianity has done its utmost to close the circle and declared even doubt to be sin. One is supposed to be cast into belief without reason, by a miracle, and from then on to swim in it as in the brightest and least ambiguous of elements. Even a glance towards land, even the thought that one perhaps exists for something else as well as swimming, even the slightest impulse of our amphibious nature is sin. And notice that all this means that the foundation of belief and all reflection on its origin is likewise excluded as sinful. What is wanted are blindness and intoxication and an eternal song over the waves in which reason has drowned. That's Nietzsche's take when it comes to doubt in the Christian faith. Listen to Voltaire's position. Doubt is an uncomfortable condition, but certainty is a ridiculous one. Remember, doubt essentially is to waver, to hesitate, to shift between two opinions, as we discussed earlier. Church, in order to overcome doubt, you need to understand what may bring about doubt. If you don't know what brings you doubt in your daily life, you'll never be able to overcome it. Unfortunately, so many people know what it is they're struggling with, they don't know what causes that struggle. So here's the first thing. Stop being distracted. Jesus makes this statement to Peter. And it says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. 
I think every believer can relate to this experience of Peter. Stepping out in faith to walk on the water only to see the winds and begin to sink. You ever tried to do something for God and you were excited to do it only to realize, goodness, I don't think I have what it takes. This is a lot more than I was thinking. It's a lot harder than I thought. We all get to that place, right, where we have that urgent cry to be saved. Help me! You see, Peter initially showed faith in stepping out on the water, but was distracted by the waves, which caused him to sink and cry out for help. Listen, one of the things that is so common and where doubt really arises is where we're distracted from the Word of God. Your distractions away from the Word of God will keep you from hearing Him, clearly. They'll bring about doubt rather than faith. It's impossible to live by faith, church, apart from the Word of God. You ask yourself this question, when you do not spend time with God in prayer, in the Word, how much do you doubt? I believe every one of us would answer without any reservation that we doubt a lot more. At least when it comes to matters of our faith. Maybe in other areas we would bolster ourselves to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But when it comes to matters of our faith, I think there's a doubt that would creep in. And it does creep in. So many Christians wonder why they doubt. Well, one of the places they should look is their distractions. You see, the waves were what distracted Peter. We have plenty of our own distractions. And sometimes they're what we call good distractions, right? Well, I needed to spend time with the family, right? It's a good distraction. Nothing wrong with that. We absolutely should spend time with our families. I needed to pay the bills. I needed to work my job. I needed to go take care of this errand. Sometimes what ends up happening is all these things that we're distracted by keep us away from the very thing that we need most. Instead of turning that radio station to something that really is going to be useless and senseless for you to listen to, why don't you turn it to the Word of God? Maybe download a sermon that will remind you of the faithfulness of God. What you put in your mind is going to come out of your life. And unfortunately, the reason why so many Christians doubt is because they have no faith entering. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You want to live in doubt? Stay away from the word of God. It's inevitable. If you want to overcome doubt, you've got to check your distractions. Here's another thing that you and I need to do. Stop putting conditions on your faith. Some of you doubt because you put conditions on your faith. In John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, here's what it says. Now Thomas called the twin, 
One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. This is after the resurrection, when Jesus makes himself known to the disciples. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, or doubtful if you will, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The reason why so many Christians have doubts in their faith is because they put conditions on God outside the Word of God. God, if you only give me this bonus, then I'll start tithing. God, if you only help me with this situation, then I'll give my life to you. God, if you only help me with my kids, I'll do this. Stop putting conditions on your faith that essentially are a means of wanting God to live the way you want. And unfortunately, what ends up happening for many of us, we put conditions on God based on what he's done for others. Well, you gave them a nice house. You gave them an amazing family. Where's mine? They're financially well off compared to me. What about me, God? The quickest way to doubt with that is putting an unrealistic expectation and, not, and misapplying the word of God. God has every right to give to whoever he wills, whatever he wishes, which is why some will live till 90 under the mercy and grace of God, and some only live to 25. Who are you to reply to God? Which is why we live in doubt. We think we have a right. The quickest way to doubt God's goodness is to expect something he's never promised. The other disciples saw Jesus. Thomas is like, I refuse. I don't care if there are many of you that told me you saw Jesus. I won't believe it until I see it. Until I actually can touch the prints of the nails in his hands. I will not believe you. Until I experience what that person's experienced, I will not take God at his word. That's essentially what we say. And no wonder many of us are living in doubt. The beauty is God many times still helps us in the areas that we've demanded. 
And he wants us to realize what Thomas realizes. My Lord and my God. The amazing, tremendous blessing so many of us experience when we've demanded from God is stunning. Jesus calms his unbelief and doubts. He promises a blessing to those who do not see but still believe. Did you realize this, believer, that this promise is a promise to us? Not having seen Jesus physically, that we believe. Why do we live in doubt? We're just like Thomas, putting conditions on God. I won't believe until you do for me what you did for someone else, God. As if we have any right. Here's the last thing. Ask in faith. James 1, 2 through 8. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Faith during trials is stable in stability. With full confidence, assurance that we can overcome anything that comes our way. Whereas doubt is lacking assurance in God's help and ability to help during that trial. Which is why many assume they can simply build up their self confidence and wonder why it's gone so quick. But I was listening to that self-help guru and I was feeling good about myself. And I faltered. And I'm depressed. If your faith is in yourself, you should doubt. You will fail. If your faith is in God and His faithfulness, you ought to have no doubt but rather ask in full confidence that God will grant you wisdom to withstand any trial that you may have. Listen, church, don't expect it to go well if you're doubting God's ability to help you in the trials. Scripture promises instability to those who doubt God's capability. You doubt God's capability, you're promised instability. Simply put, that's what James says. Shouldn't expect anything from the Lord if you can't make up his mind that he's going to trust in him. 
One of the most common things you'll find in society is the endless skepticism we operate under. With the assumption that as long as I just keep asking questions without any clear answers, I'm really just discovering my own truth. I've seen guys like this that went to Bible college with me. Endless skepticism to the Word of God and discovering themselves left them apart from the Word of God. You ever find people that are skeptical of everything? Like, no matter what's going on, that's not the truth. can't be the truth. I don't know what the truth is, but I, don't know, I know that that's not the truth. Whatever they're telling me, that just lies. I mean, with the media, it's pretty easy. It's pretty much always that case, but... Some are just skeptical about everything. They're skeptical about the Word of God. They're skeptical about what people tell them. And they think that just by asking questions with no answers, they're developing something. You need something that's certain, church. Endless questions are not going to give you anything. Which is one of the reasons why it's amazing when people try to poke holes in Christianity, they just end with only endless questions without any solutions themselves. Why is abortion wrong? Well, it's clear from the Word of God that man is made in the image of God, which means that there is a purpose and a reason for why it's important to not violate that. If you're going off a philosophy that says that man or animals should be a no-brainer. And yet, people have to back away from that, so that's why they have to ask endless questions. It's almost as if asking endless questions with no answers proves that we somehow have arrived. I'm a professional skeptic. Look at me. I can doubt anything that comes my way. Whenever God's using someone in my life, I'm going to doubt that that's actually a gift from Him. When I'm struggling with something, I'm going to doubt that God's really using this for my good. When God blesses me with extra in life, I'm going to doubt that he really still cares. Endless skepticism. I love what Dallas Willard says about faith and doubt. Listen to what he says. We live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. We can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. Listen, church, God wants you and me to study his word with full confidence in what it says. When it comes to doubt, the only doubt that we should have is in ourselves and others because we will fail. This is absolute truth. When you approach scripture with doubt, the only doubt that you and I should have is our ability to understand it. The problem is not with the Word of God, with us. God's Word can be trusted fully. So in conclusion, here's my question for all of us. What causes you to doubt? What causes you to doubt? Is it your circumstances? Look, I know that I don't know everything that's going on behind the scenes in everybody's life. 
But I can assure you of one thing, when we have a lot of different things going on that we're not sure we want to share with anybody, that's going to cause a lot of doubt in our lives. Which is why we're even hesitant to share with somebody else. Because we're doubtful that they'll even understand what we're going through. And let me tell you that we're partially correct in that because we won't understand the way God does. What causes you to doubt? Is it your friends? People you know? Scripture clearly tells us to delight in the law of the Lord and to stay away from those that scoff at what Scripture says. Listen, believer, you can have Christian friends that cause you to doubt. You can have Christian friends that go, ah, reading the Bible every day. It's not that important. God doesn't even care about that. Yeah, you know, we pray once in a while. It's not a big deal. You know, just pray before your meal. Thank God for this food. Amen. Those are not the friends you should be around. Don't be surprised that your secular friends aren't exactly encouraging your faith. I don't know why, but being around them doesn't want me to make me want to be more in the Word of God. Here's a question. What causes you to doubt? Is it yourself? When you look at yourself, do you begin doubting your faith? Begin doubting God? Because you yourself are not living out that saint that he declared you to be? Is it your performance that causes you to doubt all that God has promised? Well, look, I'm not lining up to it, so, I mean, I I can't believe that God really is still going to be for me. I mean, he knows the way I'm living right now. It's not anywhere near as consistent as I should be. In fact, I'm flat out living like a sinner, not a saint. Which is why I love that text that Paul says, when we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. You find it easier to believe others can walk faithfully with God, but you can't? Oh, you know those great saints of old? Spurgeon, they really had faith. You really realize that man struggled with doubt just like you do? Struggled with depression? Wonder if God cared for him as well? Don't put people on a pedestal without realizing they struggle with the same thing you do. Maybe you've been doubting because the results in your life are not what you expected. Don't let those things deter you from the faith that you ought to have in God's word. Those things on the outside should not change what's clearly revealed here. Speaking of Spurgeon, let's go to what Spurgeon says here. I believe that the happiest of all Christians and the truest of Christians are those who never dare to doubt God. But take his word simply as it stands and believe it and ask no questions, just feeling assured that if God has said it, it will be so.